See You Now is a podcast highlighting the innovative and human-centered solutions that nurses are coming up with to solve for today's most challenging healthcare problems. Created in collaboration with Johnson & Johnson and the American Nurses Association and hosted by nurse economist and health tech specialist, Shauna Butler. Welcome to See You Now. I'm your host, Shauna Butler. I would argue that this is not an economic decision, it's a moral one. We need to have a national conversation as citizens about what services are we prepared to support that are essential, necessary, respectful, and basic. We should be driving a different conversation than the one we're having right now. What are we prepared to invest in as citizens? What are those hard discussions we are willing to have to say that as healthcare providers, we stand in solidarity with the people we serve? Despite per capita spending on healthcare that far exceeds every other nation, the United States has the highest rate of pregnancy-related deaths in the developed world, and the racial disparities are stark. The CDC reports that Black mothers die at three to four times the rate of white mothers, and the mortality rate of Black infants is higher than that of any other ethnic group in the U.S. Regardless of income and education level, childbirth for black women is more dangerous than it is for white women. Even tennis legend Serena Williams had a dangerous close call during her pregnancy. From pregnancy to postpartum care, thousands of American women live in maternal toxic zones characterized by a lack of access to health care, high rates of cardiovascular disease, and discrimination. Yet a shocking 60% of maternal deaths are preventable. So why is the rate of black mothers dying in the US increasing while declining sharply worldwide? And why are the birthing experiences of black families so starkly different than for white families? To answer these troubling questions leads to an even more complex set of problems where we desperately need to innovate. And they have to do with structural and systemic racism, racialized disparities, intrinsic bias, and a lot more. In this episode of See You Now, we talk with three innovators who both personally and professionally, and as members of the Black Mamas Matter Alliance, work tirelessly on advancing policy grounded in human rights to improve Black maternal health and lives. These innovators, a nurse, a midwife, and a physician, constantly go beyond the why and challenge everything. The historical narrative, the educational foundation upon which we teach and learn, the language we use, the business models we operate in, and what we monitor, measure, value, and pay for. Jenny Joseph is a midwife who fights to ensure every woman has the healthiest possible pregnancy, birth, and postpartum experience with dignity and support. Joya Creer-Perry is an OBGYN physician, founder and president of the National Birth Equity Collaborative and a thought leader in racism as a root cause of health inequities. Monica McLemore is a nurse, clinician scientist, professor at UCSF, and a member of the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health. We talk about the Black Nurse Midwife Movement, working together as interdisciplinary teams, 
and how COVID has forced us to examine pregnancy care and has perhaps been the catalyst for improvement in how we practice. I start by asking each guest to introduce themselves and to talk a bit about what brings them to the work they do and their drive to innovate. Oh, and one quick note. When we recorded this, Kamala Harris was Senator Kamala Harris. And today, she is Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. My name is Jenny Joseph, and I'm a midwife. I've been a midwife at this point nearly 40 years. I was born and raised in England, and I was educated in England, trained as a midwife in 1979. My program that I founded in 1998 is called Common Sense Childbirth, and it's a nonprofit organization. And the purpose of the organization is to make sure that no one is turned away every woman, every person that wants help, care and support in their maternity journey can get that. The four main tenets of our work are access, connections, knowledge and empowerment. We found that this program, and we call it Common Sense Childbirth, benefits and supports not only mother, baby, family and community, but also the providers of the same care through the workforce development. Hi, I'm Dr. Joya Creer-Perry, and I'm an OBGYN by training, the founder and president of the National Birth Equity Collaborative, I'm the board of the Black Mamas Matter Alliance. The innovation that our organization, um, the National Birth Equity Collaborative, is really focusing on right now is respectful maternity care as a quality improvement initiative, thinking about how it's used globally and how it can be used in the United States to rethink how we devalue birthing people and women and exchange how we can really think about reimagining things like birthing and postpartum and really building out strategies that include anti-racism in our quality improvement initiatives, in our simulations, because we have to undo the things that we were, were learned that were inaccurate. My name is Dr. Monica Rose McLemore. I am an, an associate professor who is tenured at the University of California, San Francisco in the Family Healthcare Nursing Department. I am a clinician scientist at Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health, which is a program of the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health. I am a trained public health nurse and like Jeannie Joseph and like my good friend, Dr. Joy Crip Perry, I am on the uh, advisory board for the Black Mamas Matter Alliance. And my research and my work is really focused on really understanding contextually reproductive justice in the context of health services provision. And I'm very, very interested in testing and understanding models to improve health outcomes that are community driven, community engaged and community envisioned. And so for me, the innovation that I am most interested in amplifying is disruption in not only how we conduct science, but how we also do public health practice, as well as to really, really appreciate team-based approaches and how we conduct and disseminate evidence from our research studies, our clinical practice, and to disrupt how we educate the future workforce. This is a wonderful moment to be in conversation with legends. Joya Creer-Perry, Jenny Joseph, Monica McLemore. Can you provide context from the standpoint of Black Mamas Matter and the Black Mamas Matter Alliance and what we understand about this problem and what it is that we're doing to innovate towards changing and improving so that we don't have to have this type of a conversation. 
Well, first of all, you know, I want to lift up Jenny and, and Joya. It's good to have a nurse and a physician and a midwife all together on a call because the more that we model what we're asking other people to do, the easier it becomes for individuals. So one innovation I can see us do to really strip down healthcare hierarchy in the same way that you see people like refusing to be all manals or all male panels, we can make sure that as we are setting up national conversations, that we bring in as many voices or as many team-based voices or as, as many, you know, we, we model what we're asking other people to do. That's just badass. Second of all, you know, for me, I have to live up to my own expectations of myself in my own mind. So I allow myself the whole gamut of emotional responses for where we are right now. And, and today I'm, I'm coming to this, this podcast enraged. And I'll tell you why enraged is the word that I will use. This is not a Black Mamas problem. This is not a Black Mamas Matter Alliance problem. This is a problem of people trying to access health care that's actually grounded in white supremacist principles. This is a situation where we do not want to invest in the wisdom, the knowledge, or the capacity for Black people in this country, who I like to remind folks are only 13% of the population. And, and so if we could fix racism, if we could fix healthcare, we could, if we could fix the fact that there are 39 certified programs of nurse midwifery in the United States and zero are at historically black colleges and universities, which are the number one producers of STEM graduates in the United States. If we could get people to be as serious about solving the problem of racism in healthcare, as opposed to not focusing on what's wrong with black people, there's nothing wrong with black birthing people. It is the structures, institutions, and the workforce, at least in healthcare where we are trying to be able to optimize our reproductive life courses. That's the problem, right? So for me, I'm also a very goofy Gen X person who happens to be a very serious scientist. And for me, we, my motivation always comes from we can do better. It doesn't have to be like this. And, and, and that should not be an innovative statement in 2020, but when I think about where we've been in the last six months, the, the coexistence of Black women dying in labor, childbirth, now we layer on COVID-19. It should not be an innovative thing to think as a public health trained nurse with midwifery and physician colleagues. It shouldn't be innovative for us to say, wow, none of this had to be like this. And moving forward in the future, it doesn't have to be like that either. So I, I am worried that perhaps we lost a window when everybody was in agreement that being at home and shelter in place and our whole unified approach to protecting as many people as possible got sacrificed on the altar of the economy. I, I worry about that, that, that we've lost a chance to really, really have a collective public health response. I worry that we don't have the courage to make the changes that we need to in order to make these outcomes different. A lot of people I hear say, follow your passion. I believe that frustration is the birthplace of innovation. What frustration does is it allows you to tap into your conviction. In order to drive through an innovation, you have to have a lot of conviction. So Jenny, I have been recently listening to when you were in DC with the American Center for Progress. You were speaking to a panel about maternal death in this country. 
And the person that you were speaking to was Senator Kamala Harris. So this yeah. is just this really perfect moment. So I wanted to invite you to just start out with, talk about what frustration is driving your desire to innovate and to solve really difficult problems. Well, you know, I, I would actually change the word. It's not frustration, it's anger. I am so mad. There's a level of pain and angst when I think about words that we've introduced in this world, you know, weathering and moral injury, you know, all of these terms come straight up for me because it doesn't make any sense. And that it is such an egregious human rights issue where I see it. And I'm talking about black, indigenous, people of color, not just mortality, but the acceptance and condoning of this morbidity at this level. And the historical piece is what sends me off into these constant tailspins. Joya, I would love for you to share the work that you're doing under the umbrella of the Birth Equity Collaborative. You know, how we created that name, the National Birth Equity Collaborative, is really how we move in space. And so it's interesting that you use this passion versus frustration, because it's kind of an ongoing conversation Monica and I have around how we lead. And truthfully, I lead with passion. And I've always been passionate about fighting for change since I was a child. So I have three children. They share my same passion. It is a natural part of our personalities uh, to really fight for justice. And it brings me joy to fight for justice. I am actually saddened if I can't fight for equality. That actually makes me sad. Like, I don't know what it looks like to just be still. So my, I get energized. I think the work that we need is to try to show people that this conversation around racism is not just an emotional conversation. Yes, it causes anger. Um, yes, it causes people to be frustrated and it causes people to be sad. But even if you don't have an emotional tie, it is morally and ethically and factually and scientifically incorrect. The idea of a hierarchy of human value based upon skin color has been used to harm and to colonize and to create power and wealth for many, many peoples for a long time. So you can not care and not be emotional about it and still be actively anti-racist because you know it's factually incorrect to believe in a hierarchy of human value based upon skin color and to create policies and cultures based upon that incorrect hypotheses in science. When we talk about maternal health, we think about it in the terms of global context and then also where we are in the U.S., it's shocking, horrifying, disturbing, but can you put numbers on it so that as we're thinking about this, we really know where we are right now to this, our starting point at this moment and what it is that we need to do to have a much, much, much happier story? Yeah, well, I think, and I'll I'm starting and Jenny can help me out because she's more of the global citizen, um, but uh, you know, we are the worst in the industrialized world. Our numbers for um, birthing in general, women are more likely to die in the United States within a year of childbirth than any other high income country. And we spend a lot of time as the United States trying to fight it, like saying, well, the numbers might be wrong. We, might, we weren't counting it right. So finally, the CDC last year released a, a report that it hadn't done since 2007. And the numbers show that we're still the worst of any high income country in the world. We consider ourselves to be doing well when it comes to freedom, but the truth is we've never been doing well when it comes to freedom for black people, for indigenous people, for women in general. So we are not the worst in the industrialized world just because 
we are racist. We are the worst also because we harm women in general. We don't value women in general. And that shows up in the outcomes that we see. We don't support things like equal pay. We don't have enough women in Congress. We are making those political choices and not investing, and that makes us be the worst in an industrialized world. And I'll just add, the U.S. has the same rate for Black birthing people as the U.K., even though the U.K. has universal health insurance. So what it also shows you is in the, US, in the U.K., it's Caribbean and Pakistani. So how we even categorize race is different around the world. So we have to have a conversation around what race really means. In the global context, they start trying to blame ethnicities on the worst outcomes. It must be they sleep too close together. You know, it's all this, they're doing all these herbal, like everywhere that you marginalize a population, you see worse outcomes. So what that shows to me, at least when I look at the numbers in the UK, that even when you have universal health care coverage, if you still devalue groups of people, you will see poor birth outcomes. They will come in and they won't be seen the way they're supposed to. They'll have to go to clinics and not see the same provider. They'll get all these other things that they don't get from a Jenny from some of the other folks who really actually value them. Jenny, from the standpoint, I'm thinking about the midwifery model and how it's a different model than the obstetric model. And so from the standpoint of, I'm not sure that people really understand where the risks are during that pregnancy journey, whether it's prenatal, during the pregnancy period or postpartum, where the great risks are and what those risks are for not having a good birth experience and launching new lives and, and new families. I think you really got to look at this as a continuum. So there's the perinatal period before birth, during birth, postpartum, but also interconceptional in the United States, at least there's this no man's land of what's women's health. Like that's a thing here. Like people are still confused as to why would there be a provision for women's health? Um, you know, way back when I was in England, every other corner had a well woman's health clinic, which was run by the National Health Service, which was accessible to everybody. It was part of your healthcare continuum. You would see a general practitioner or you would go to the well woman's clinic or you'd take on the maternity services, but they were all available to you. But what I think here is that, first of all, we've got capitalism in the middle of everything. And so unless you even address that, there's no real acknowledgement there that this is why they are perpetuated. And so when you look at midwifery as an answer, it could be, but the United States will not embrace midwifery. They made more effort to eradicate and, and to bring midwifery to the fringe as it currently is. Even now, maybe less than 10% of women in the United States have a midwife, whether it's a hospital-based midwife or a community midwife. So midwifery certainly would answer much of these problems. Um, because midwifery treats women and, and deals with women and um, childbearing people from a perspective of patient-centered, person-centered care. And that's anathema to the United States, and there's the end of it. But the other thing I think is really important, especially when we're talking about numbers, is to really look at the fact that, yeah, mortality is one thing, and we're measuring mortality so much better, but morbidity is the problem. What worries me more than anything is how, if ever, we'll capture the number of women who nearly died, people who didn't get to the point of going to the morgue, but they left the ICU nonetheless, and they went home with everything that they had to manage because they were in an ICU just having a baby. That number, we throw around numbers like 50,000 or 60,000 near miss, it's way, way higher. We'll never be able to capture it because women have nobody to tell, to share, no one's counting them, they don't belong. The minute the obstetric episode is finished, you moved on. You don't belong. Nobody's interested. And the cycle continues. 
I completely agree with you, Jeannie. And I think we need to have a broader conversation, like a real truth and reconciliation about the strategic investments that we want to be able to make in our citizens. And I just want to say as an OBGYN, I am clear that the midwifery model of care is what Black women need in the United States and around the world, and that we are not trained or taught how to provide that kind of care in our OBGYN system, and that we really need to differentiate between kind of our clinical specialization and the midwifery model. But I'll add to that, that racialized capitalism and also has impacted midwifery. So it's not just capitalism, it's racialized Mm -hmm. capitalism. So this idea that only white women can be midwives. So when that happens and you show up in a community and you say, we want the midwifery model of care, but you black women don't get to be one, no one wants to invest in that system. That is not gonna free us. That is also replicating harm. That's also taking your power as a white woman and harming black and brown people. So until we can come to a conclusion that our workforce, our midwifery workforce should reflect the actual citizens of this country, just like our OBGYN. There are more black OBGYNs than there are black midwives. That's ridiculous. That should not exist. If the normal way that should happen is as you go up the little hierarchical chain, it should be less. So that shows you how the matriarchy inside of nursing and midwifery is ignoring racism and causing harm. So until that is dealt with, I I love bragging about how midwifery would be the way, but midwifery has to have a conversation and nursing has to have a conversation about racism. Jenny, so many times access has been a place where we haven't innovated on. And the clinic that you run, you really removed all the boxes towards access. I mean, from the standpoint of thinking about who gets care, when they get to have care, how they get to have care. What I love about your clinic is we take all comers. We don't care what stage of your pregnancy you are, your ability to pay, any of your comorbidities, where you want to deliver, who you want to deliver. That has just been such a radical uh, way to think about how you deliver care in the space of your entire pregnancy journey. I think you even have people coming from other places other than Central Florida to come and get their maternity care. From the standpoint of thinking about how we innovate around access to care, I, I really think of you as a leader in all of that. Can you speak to what you've seen and the outcomes that you've been able to achieve using an innovation mindset to achieve it? Well, and, you know, I appreciate you using the word innovation, Shauna, but to me, it was common sense. And I have an organization named Common Sense Childbirth, but that's a 25-year-old organization. So I named it before I figured out this so-called innovation. Again, it came right back down to these egregious human rights issues. You cannot turn someone away just because. So to me, it can't be considered innovation because it's not anything new when you consider that this is our responsibility. And in accepting anybody who showed up, the, okay, there was a little bit of innovation there. It was in that as a midwife with my little limited midwife scope, which doesn't give me much latitude at all, I was able to say, well, hold up. Yeah, you're high risk and you shouldn't be here. But if I don't bring you in, the crazy backward system that says you cannot access perinatology care unless a physician sends you to the perinatologist and the emergency room will not send you to the perinatologist. They'll just tell you how bad you are and send you out the door and be surprised when you come back in labor to the same ER that you were just sent from. So what we realized was in order to navigate this very convoluted and bureaucratic system, 
the onus was on us as providers to say, we'll find out how you get it done, if it's even doable, and we'll come back and share. So the access was, yes, to the actual physical prenatal care, postpartum care support, encouragement, education, true. But truly, the access was to somebody who gives a care. Enough to go figure out, yeah. I found out the way that you can get into the high-risk OB clinic. You have to do 10,000 hoops, and we know all 10,000 of them, and we will support you while you do at least 99 of them. So it was really about recognizing that you cannot, I don't think, break through the system as it stands. You must circumvent. You must go around. You must go under. You must make your collaborations out of nothing. You must find the backline number and the cell phone number and sit at this crazy meeting and make friends in order to pave a way. That's not right. In and of itself, and that is not an innovation. So I started telling people, well, guess what? My innovation is listen to black women. Because clearly what y'all been doing <laughs> is y'all giving millions of dollars, foundations, uh, governments, paying for the same answers over and over and over again. Where we have people like Jenny, like members of the Black Mamas Matter Alliance, all have been innovating, having to figure out how to actually care for people because they do see Black people in the future. And the reason I use that concrete language, if you need to be able to see Black people in the future, Darwin did not see Black people in the future. He wrote, the world will be white. Indigenous, Black people, people of color will be replaced by all white people. The founding of our entire healthcare industry was built upon this belief of a hierarchy of human value and that some people will just not exist. So that's when you see that in all of other ways we structure all of our systems that they just really didn't expect us to last this long. So we're here. We're not dying off. And I see my grandchildren in the future. I need people to then invest in the innovation of Black people, of Black women, of Black folks, because we've been seeing ourselves in the future and we have created systems that go around. But why don't we make that be the actual way that we do work? Because when you do that, everybody rises. When you do that, the white women who have been told that they can only be a nurse and not get to be the supervisor nurse, or you don't get to ever move up or whatever, like all the things that you've been holding on to too, you get a win too. So this is not, it's not a oppression Olympics, right? Like let's invest in the brilliance of the folks who've been trying to figure this out. That's the core fundamental point that you're making though, that I don't think people understand that if you, if you center the people who are most burdened by something, it improves for everybody. But what is it like to be um, a black mother, a black mama, a black mom? I mean, I think we go by so many different names and it represents our different cultural backgrounds. But maybe, Joy, you, you want to take that on from the standpoint of giving us some context around that history. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I have three children. The reason that we picked mama as our language is because of how we talk about mama reflects how black women talk about mama. So that means people who are raising children who might not have biologically birthed them, people who are transgendered, folks who are aunties, right? So mama in our community has always meant the person who is supportive of and raising the child. Yeah, I mean, and to build on that, I, as an auntie and a childless by choice person, I'm, a, I'm like fairy god aunt to like seven different kids, and I got like 17 other kids, people I support. Take the village concept very seriously. And so Black Mamas Matter Alliance uses, and we have a, a, a very comprehensive definition of this on our website, but mama has no connotation to whether or not you birthed anybody. And it also has no connotation to with whom you live or how you choose to set up family or kin. 
It has to be consistent with reproductive justice. Reproductive justice is the sort of praxis and theory and political strategy and organizing principle that we all use that guides our work. And it is really grounded in human rights principles that are very distinct from how we also think about how healthcare is set up in a rationalized, capitalistic kind of way. Because human rights, you know, really claims that you have a human right to be able to determine if you want to birth in the conditions under which you would do that or not. So we really want to talk about remaking a health system that is respectful of people with the capacity for pregnancy. What do we want to make strategic investments in for our citizens, not consumers? One of the things that I wanted to pull in is this black midwives movement. All of you have said, we don't have the training pathways. We don't have the schools set up. They're not in the places where we need to serve people. And Jenny, you have been on the forefront of really rethinking that. And I think we all want to, you know, we've got a big round of applause because you just got accreditation for your direct entry midwifery school. So yes. this is, uh, and this has been what, a 20 year journey that you've been on? Well, yeah, I feel very proud of that. But I also recognize that, okay, so now what? So, you know, if I double back a little bit, first of all, I just wanted to talk about safety. For me, at least in our practice and the work we've done and the way we do it, and the other women that I know that are doing similar work, safety impacts physiology. And so it, these pieces that are very simple in my world to put in place, and yes, of course, cultural congruence makes sense. But anybody who gives a care who will be willing to provide some level of respect and compassion to maintain dignity will get the same outcome mm-hmm. because it's about this, this something that's intrinsically in, in our human way of being that if we feel safe, we will do better. And that's just a given. And that's what my research has shown. The, the thing I think that's important is underlying all of these, whichever area we're talking about, whether it's the actual practice, whether it's the practitioner, whether it's the community, whether it's the, the hospital systems, that across the board, safety has to be job one. And then the quality is what informs the safety. And without them, you can't have one without the other. The third part of the work, and this brings me full circle back to the school, is workforce development. And that within that workforce, not only do we train, certify, and deploy providers who get this from their DNA level, not having to have learned that lesson or done that continuing education unit, but rather that's who they are, that their way of being is that, that they are coming out into the workforce from a place where they got all they need to be able to be safe providers, quality providers. But the other piece is that we must recognize the need for those same providers to have the same supports that we're putting in place for our patients, our clients, meaning that they have some level of respect, that they have some autonomy, that they have some agency, they have some power, they have some understanding of their need for support and collective care, self-care, recognition, that we cannot keep creating and putting out into the workforce people who are already half burned out before they start, people who have no capacity, no resilience left. They have given it all 
at the grassroots level before they even get on the pipeline towards career paths where they can continue to serve and to be genuinely able and empowered and productive and safe themselves. Like, so applying these same principles, safety, quality, support, empowerment to the client as well and the mother baby family when I say client as well as the providers of that same care. That would be the transitional work for me to see that the system is rebuilt from the bottom up, but with providers who are not going into the same rat race, the same horrendous approach that we have where we wear our providers down to the very bone and then wonder why they're suicidal. You mentioned safety, you mentioned workforce, you mentioned driving people down into the ground. COVID has done all of that. This is a moment where we are forced to and have a a rare opportunity to really rethink what care needs to be like. In reviewing and going through maternal care right now, or we can go back to even, you know, pregnancy intention, the reproductive justice piece. Everything that we have done as far as how we access care, congregant settings, going into maternity care centers or going into hospitals, Everything is being done in a very different way because of COVID, whether mm-hmm. that's who can be in the room, mm-hmm. how you can access it, your, your um, team that's coming in and taking care of you. They're all masked and gowned. We're doing COVID testing ahead of time. When we think about, does a mom come in and they test positive? What happens when a baby might test positive? What happens if they have preterm birth and they need to go into a NICU? Mm-hmm. Um, if, if the mom tests positive and we got to send them home and we're then the breastfeeding piece, the postpartum care. So every single part of this journey must be rethought and changed. So I'm going to start with you, Monica, from the standpoint, if you can take it from the lens of our reproductive care, from the standpoint of care in the prenatal space. And Jenny, since I think midwifery just has such a really strong model with postpartum care, Talk to me about what the innovation opportunities are, given that we got to do this differently. We're going to have to innovate. Design for me and talk to, also, if you've got some of those examples, very specific examples of where those innovations are being done, I think that these are important points that we need to hear and have up for discussion. Yeah, I really appreciate the question. And quite frankly, I could go on about this for an hour, so I'm make this quick. Because I do think that if the last 16 weeks have taught us nothing, it's that we can change all of this. This is all built and it doesn't have to be like this at all. Omnibus is a nine bills that was introduced by Rep. Alma Adams and Rep. Lauren Underwood and the Black Maternal Caucus, which uh, cover everything from, you know, a reimagination of how we pay for birth-related care, uh, how we take care of uh, veterans who have pregnancies, uh, maternal mental health, And it's really grounded in this whole idea that our workplaces are inhumane. So then let's think about how we could change that. Number two, can we get a a national lobby of healthcare professional organizations, institutions to keep some COVID-19 related innovations permanent? We all have had national licensure since the beginning of time. I don't understand why I have to have a state specific license to work across state lines. In COVID-19, my university sent people to New York City in the ICUs, and we sent people to the Navajo Nation in Arizona because we could work across state lines. So we should probably make that permanent too. This telehealth and virtual situation, 
The Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, as well as Innovation and Medicaid, need to continue to pay for enhanced prenatal care visits from doulas, midwives, physicians, the whole team, doesn't matter how many you need, and they should be on demand. Why don't we make that permanent? The other thing I'll shout out to, to set Jenny and, and Joya up is, we have to get at these auxiliary maternity units. Where else can birthing people birth, right? We have to make significant investments in that. I'd like to remind people that for most people, pregnancy is not a disease state to be managed. So if you want to end, regardless of how it ends, actually, let's put it that way, regardless how pregnancies end, you can safely do it in places that are not hospitals and healthcare institutions. We can make a commitment as a nation right now to stop childbirth being the number one reason why people are admitted to hospitals annually. We have 4 million people admitted in the United States and the number one reason for hospital admission prior to COVID-19 was childbirth. And I think COVID, and as your point around um, so many people is changing, for many black and brown people, it's the same. We were already being policed. We were already being told we couldn't have people come in the birthing rooms with us. And when I had my first child, I was, my mother was the only one that was allowed to come in the room. It was a normal vaginal delivery. I could only have one person. It happens in communities where black people birth all over the country, been going on. That ain't new for us. This is not new news. But for COVID, what my hope is, is this opportunity for us to see that all of us deserve to be able to have whomever we want in the room. We like, I'm from New Orleans, right? I would deliver people, aunties are in there. We got Popeyes, we got everybody, right? This is a whole- You want your chef in there. <laughs> exactly. So, but that is not, that's, and you can't police me because you culturally think that that's odd. So that's what happens. People go to birthing hospitals and they're told, you shouldn't want to have all these people in here. Well, that's your cultural belief. If you don't want a bunch of people, go for that. Yay for you. But I want to celebrate. I want to have other people in the room. So allowing freedom, making room for birth centers, making room for home birth, making room for mm -hmm. people to have their personal bodily autonomy. And we know that everybody doesn't need to have a baby in the ICU. So how do we support people to have less intervention and more freedom and choice? Do you think that with COVID, I mean, you're seeing it right now from the standpoint of it changed overnight. So, so many of the things that we're doing, we're doing differently and we're probably in some ways doing better because just the limitations. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious from the standpoint of the limitations that you have seen and having to rethink or to innovate in real time, what are you learning that you could stop doing that you should have stopped doing a long time ago that you're getting a better outcome for? A big, a big one is blaming patients for non-compliance. When we never really mm -hmm. even had a mm -hmm. list of what compliance meant, right? So we know... Mm -hmm have up to 12 patients visits but you know some people people have always worked people have always had jobs so they couldn't make all these appointments and so we love blaming and shaming them though if they couldn't make all the appointments so what really is the level of prenatal care required what really do people really need from us i honestly think that our midwifery colleagues have more of a sense of that than we do as OBGYNs. Mm -hmm. Um, but we, we have this kind of rote thing. Now my colleagues are telling people, well, you really only need three visits. Well, if they only needed three in-person visits before, how is that going to be different post-COVID? Like, what, is, what do they really have to come downtown to see you in this big center where they have to pay for a taxi ride downtown or mm -hmm. pay for parking, sit all day, miss their hourly wage job for you to see them for 15 minutes? Do they really need to do that 12 times? Some things they could have taken their own blood pressure. Some things they could have done their own weight. Like, how do we give people bodily autonomy for the jobs that they have, the lives that they, they have, other kids trying to figure out childcare? Like, we gave no room for any of that before COVID. And so now providers are making room for it for themselves, for their own 
for both sides, but that's the, really the innovation of what do people really need when it comes to prenatal care. Do you think it's changed it from the standpoint of it, it actually now becomes more personalized and driven as opposed to algorithm and here's so. what our standard of practice is about? My nervousness is around bias. So the less power you have, you're getting just dismissed. And so that's why I'm, ner- I'm nervous that there's going to be an uptick in black deaths, uh, black birthing people deaths when we get the data after this. There will be. Yeah, there will be. Because our bias is still there. We still dismiss certain groups of people. But I do think this opportunity of seeing what, if we stop blaming black folks for having to work, like black birthing people, like, and shaming them because they can't make the appointments when you say, like that decreases their, their harm. I mean, I think half of the people probably see my, me and my Jenny because we are not fussing at you because you can't be here at exactly 9.05. I mean, you got three kids, you got stuff to do. Like, I'm just trying to make you fit in where you can get in, babe. <laughs> like, this is, <laughs> I was just going to say, it seems like the reception when somebody gets in there should be this cheer line to say, yeah. yay, you, you have run the gauntlet of being a mother, a very, very busy mother trying to manage all this. You got yeah. yourself here. We exactly. should be caring for that. We do the opposite. We fuss. You're late. You're 10 minutes late. You're canceled. Um, we don't care that you took three buses to get here and you're sweaty and you probably could have had an eclamptic seizure sitting outside trying to get here. It's on you. So, yeah. All right, Jenny, I'm teeing you up for postpartum. I did not appreciate where the greatest risk in your birthing experience and the outcome of moms and babies really lie in postpartum. With COVID having to, we've had to rethink everything. What are the innovations that are going to help us address um, postpartum depression, lactation consulting? Everybody's really rethinking what this can be. Guide us and so that as we do it, we do it in a way that includes everybody, that there's not bias toward it, that there's equity and fairness and decency. Um, once a mother is delivered and she's in between of babies, she's in the interconceptional, she needs access to women's health services, period. She needs to have a medical home as a matter of course in order to impact future maternity care episodes, as well as to have a continuum of care. So we could use lactation as one access point, but we could also use behavioral health as one access point. But overarching all of it is reproductive health care access, reproductive justice. And so these things have to be incorporated into whatever else we do new, even if we want to use the excuse that, oh, it's because of COVID. And I would argue that this is not an economic decision. It's a moral one. We, we need to have a national conversation as citizens about what services are we prepared to support that are essential, necessary, respectful, and basic to optimize the health of our citizens. That's the real conversation we need to have here. I mean, when you talk about lactation, breast, chest feeding, uh, family bonding, when you talk about shepherding new humans to this plane, that is a sacred thing. And people talk about it like it's a business discussion. That's right. We're talking about the propagation of the human species in the context of a global pandemic. So for me, I think we need to help you leverage our power in our respective professions, Joya, whether it's medicine, Jenny with midwives, me with nursing and public health, we should be driving a different conversation than the one we're having right now. And we can use, unfortunately, the COVID-19 failed response as an exemplar to really talk about what are we prepared to invest in as citizens? What are those hard discussions we are willing to have to say that as healthcare providers, we stand in solidarity with the people we serve. 
Yeah, it's, when you're saying that, I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, the innovation here is moral courage and a reckoning with the uh, renegotiating our social contract with, with, uh, within our citizenry. Yeah. Yes. What I think. Yeah. yeah. That sounds like it's so foundational that if we get the foundation of it right and we can innovate off of a foundation that is focused on dignity, decency, fairness, equity, inclusion, my goodness, the great things that we can achieve, the joyous lives we can have, the disease burdens that we can eliminate. And when we have that, we're going to get to a much better alignment of our health outcomes and our financial compensation models. When those things aren't aligned, it makes it really hard to get the, the health outcomes that we all deserve. I mean, it's not even desire that we deserve. This is a continuum. This is a 400-year continuum. This is not a distinct time frame where this just popped up as a thing and now we're trying to address it. So the innovations all sound great and we've got great hopes. I don't have as many as maybe say joy, <laughs> but I feel like this work and what we do and the reason why it's needed is because we're still fighting those same battles. We are not free. And until we get on the other side of this, we will not be free. Jenny Joseph is a British-trained midwife, a women's health advocate, and the founder and executive director of Common Sense Childbirth. Due to the high prematurity rates experienced by low-income and uninsured women, she established an outreach clinic for pregnant women who are at risk of not receiving prenatal care. Her clinics offer quality maternity care for all, regardless of their circumstances or ability to pay, and have successfully reduced both maternal and infant morbidity and mortality in Central Florida. She established the Common Sense Childbirth at Midwifery to provide quality, practical, and culturally sensitive training to fundamentally change maternal care and the maternity care workforce. Joya Creer-Perry is an obstetrician and gynecologist who has served in many roles, including as Director of Clinical Services for the City of New Orleans Health Department, where she was responsible for four facilities that provided health care for the homeless, pediatric, women, infant, and children's, and gynecological services within New Orleans. Joya is also the founder and president of the National Birth Equity Collaborative, focused on creating solutions that optimize Black maternal and infant health through training, policy advocacy, research, and community-centered collaboration. And she is a proud recipient of the Congressional Black Caucus Healthcare Heroes Award. At the University of California, San Francisco, Monica McLemore is a tenured associate professor in the Family Health Care Nursing Department, a clinician scientist with advancing new standards in reproductive health, and a member of the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health. She brings to these roles 28 years of clinical practice as a public health and staff nurse. Her program of research is grounded in reproductive justice, a lens she uses to understand reproductive health and rights for people with the capacity for pregnancy. Jenny, Joya, and Monica are advisory members of the Black Mamas Matter Alliance. To learn more, check it out at blackmamasmatter.org. Innovating for reproductive justice and Black maternal and newborn care requires a probing 
uncomfortable examination of our realities. And a significant and important part of innovation is problem identification, going below the surface and getting deep into the weeds, opening our eyes, as Bob Dylan said, to something we've seen before, but overlooked a hundred times or more. That process of problem identification reveals things both delightful and disturbing. New discoveries of interconnectedness, some dark and hidden truths, some entrenched interest and misaligned incentives, and inertia. Innovation in maternal care means, at times, activism, always collaboration, hopefully common sense, and now, more than ever, respect. And when we, as Monica so energetically states, center our attention and our innovation lens on those who are most burdened, conditions improve for everybody. For See You Now, I'm Shauna Butler. Thanks for listening. Hi, podcast listeners. We would love to hear from you. You can share your thoughts, your stories, your insights with us by emailing us at hello at seeyounowpodcast.com. Also, if you're enjoying this series, please recommend it to a friend and ask them to subscribe as well. With your help, we can share more stories of nurses doing incredible work and innovating in exciting ways to improve our lives and our world. See You Now is created in collaboration with Johnson & Johnson and the American Nurses Association. Johnson & Johnson is proud to power up nurse-led innovation that is transforming health outcomes through skill building, leadership development, and more. The American Nurses Association ignites and celebrates nurse-led innovation to redefine quality nursing and advance health care for all. Learn more at seeyounowpodcast.com.